Hello, and welcome to season two of Conversations on Climate, in which I've been leading a series of conversations with experts from around the world exploring the biggest challenge of our time, climate change. Around 80% of people who listen to this podcast haven't hit the follow button. If I could ask you for a small favour, if you do enjoy our conversations, please do hit that follow button on your app. It would help us in the show more than I could possibly say. Thank you and enjoy the conversation. So what we're going to be doing uh, with this panel discussion is, is broadly um, building on the concepts of the circular economy, uh, talking about um, engagements, uh, its fit with the wider ESG revolution and uh, what micro forces are in play. Um, we're going to be talking for about 45 minutes. And uh, if I can uh, start with yourself, uh, David, uh, with a, a quick two-part two question. Um, as someone who is uh, you know, an editor and in the media, um, you've been watching this space for an awful long time. And it's fair to say that the circular economy isn't a brand new concept. Like we had a kind of a big, a big splash in 2010 with the Ellen MacArthur Foundation, but it hasn't always um, kept its, its place in the sun. Uh, could you please explain how it has evolved in the mindset of the media and then also in the general public? Sure, and I think you know the general public reflects kind of the media reflects what the general public uh, thinks. Um, you know, it's circular economy has been around for a long time. As you say, it's not a sexy term. Um, it doesn't catch or fire the imagination like you know uh, um, carbon capture or you know electric vehicles, and and uh, and therefore. Um, uh, advances in uh, in infrastructure and public and private investment, uh, you know, continue to face challenges. Uh, they do in the other sectors as well, but historically, in the terms of the media, transportation and energy, to some extent, really dominate the conversation. Whereas the circular economy, in terms of uh, industries like fashion or food or uh, plastics, um, tend to fall by the wayside. Uh, which is a shame because, as Richard's presentation pointed out, um, it's all the more, it's, it's even more important and has a major role in helping us uh, achieve the Paris Accord goals. Um, a lot of it is um, that at the consumer level, people struggle to get involved with recycling or to get excited about it or see what it means, right? And then that creates issues. Um, for, you know, of collection and cost of collection. And then that rises all the way up to the development of plastic feedstocks and the market for feedstocks. And so you've got a very uneven market there, depending on which country you're talking about. And to Richard's point, you know, to get a real European infrastructure, um, you know, that, that which doesn't exist at the moment, you really need, um, you need a couple of things. You need prices to improve. Uh, for recycling, um, I mean for the market, and you need um, you need more public and private investment. It has to be has to be drilled into people's head um, what we're actually talking about, and that is you know not you know getting to the point where we're not wasting everything that we're we're doing. You know, we'll never get exactly to that point, but there's so much that can be recycled, and uh, particularly when we talk about plastics and stuff. Um, a lot of the conversation at the global political level is around um, punishment, right? Restrictions, limits, um, you know, sacrifices, um, and that people down. You know, that turns people off. 
Um, it needs to be kind of like what we're seeing in the U.S. with renewable energy, incentivized. We need an IRA, so to speak, of, uh, of the plastic industry. Some incentive, you know, incentivized countries to improve their collection, uh, incentivized countries to use AI to improve how they're doing things and sorting things and improve costs on that, uh, and incentivize the creation between giant companies, you know, and 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 Tetra Pak and 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 countries and governments to work together so that you don't have these pockets of really cool innovation that can't work on a global scale. So um, essentially the circular economy is a, is a dream we're still trying to get to, uh, at least from the media point of view. Um, and we're making progress, but like everything else, it's one step forward, two steps back. Yeah. No, and you've you know, raised some very good points there about uh, you know, the public perception uh, may be slightly cynical about it, um, and there are various movements towards recycling. But is there a... There, there's clearly been a lot of progress over recent years, and uh, like as an industry veteran, maybe you could tell us what you think the most important kind of technological advancements of recent years in the recycling was, but and if there is a piece of the puzzle that's missing that might help to redress that that psychological balance that uh, that we have on are we wasting our time recycling? Yeah, I mean, I think there's there's a huge amount of innovation that's 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 taken place, but if I can sort of break it into two separate areas. The first one has about been using fewer inputs, so uh, less energy and Tetra Pak in its processing equipment is seeking to reduce, continue to reduce the amount of energy that is required to work. So there's that side, and whether you know, machinery uses less water or the materials uh, have been lightweighted, you know, I mean, there is, if you look at what was available on packaging when I was growing up, you know, everything was really heavy. And quite clearly, we've got to lightweight packaging, so fewer materials are being used, which is all positive. The other part is actually looking at your systems, and I would say looking at systems is really important. Looking at what was labeled as waste streams, and not labeling them as waste streams anymore, but labeling them as co-products. So, um, you know, farmers always say, well, I produce food. Yes, you produce food, but the vast majority of food we have on our shelves does not arrive from the farmer mouth ready. Even, even wheat, you know, a farmer grows wheat. It needs to be turned into flour and therefore you need energy and you need technical ability to, to achieve that. So what you try and do, of course, is to see what else you can do with the parts that aren't edible for humans. Or maybe it's that you'll, and I used to work in the sugar industry, um, one of the things there was, what do you do with your waste heat? And the company I used to work for at that stage had the largest um, production of tomatoes in the country because they were using the heat that wasn't warm enough to produce the sugar, and they put it into a big glass house and it, it grew tomatoes. So it's thinking about, not thinking about waste anymore, think about what can I do with that to make it a co-product? And that becomes circularity. But my other thing that, my other real bugbear is, I said it earlier, if you view circularity as a circle, it's two-dimensional. Actually, it really is like the Earth. It's, it's about going, okay, what's the impact on nature? But how do we use nature to be part of that circular system, that full ecosystem, 
one of the bits I was very surprised about sitting on the, and I just call it the European Food Security Group because it really is a mouthful, um, was during the energy crisis, there was a lot of talk about fertilizer plants having to, to close down. And I think we all heard about the use of uh, carbon dioxide in um, slaughterhouses in abattoirs. The thing that I didn't know was fertilizer production, because it produces urea, also enables the use of AdBlue to be produced. And for those of you that know anything about diesel engines, AdBlue is required for a real environmental benefit. Now, I just didn't know that. So I'm sitting there with all these, all these experts from different parts of the food chain, the food system. It's complicated. It's really complicated. But the innovations that are coming forward to build resilience through, um, through understanding more about how systems work is really quite incredible. Fantastic. And uh, Jackie? Um, we've been t just been talking about um, connections between between humans, between people, and how how things uh, how that is essential for the, the circular economy. Um, how's the business community in Ireland here doing with the challenges that uh, are involved with these type of uh, forming these linkages? Um, well, I, th I think uh, Richard has uh, demonstrated what what his business is doing and how he's how he's working with the industry uh, to improve things. I, I think generally. Um, across the business community, they're responding in a number of ways. Individually, of course, improving their own processes and waste reduction. And, um, you know, Aramark, for example, has incorporated um, food analytics um, to minimize its waste. And then where there is overproduction, they're donating it uh, where people need it. Um, the... Uh, they're also working together collectively. So we, as you heard from Danny's introduction, IBEC is uh, representing the entire business community, but we also own and operate 39 trade and sector associations. Um, and why that matters is because they collectively come together within their industries, but then on cross-cutting issues like circularity, sustainability, all areas of ESG, they work. They work collectively. So, for example, um, you know, on the topic of uh, food and drinks, Ireland, um, they're not just looking at packaging and 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 reducing waste that way they're also thinking to the future and using industry-led uh, research and development and working collaboratively with government so there's a um, uh, national prepared food packaging center uh, food pre preparation center in um, uh, Tagus and uh, that is where government has come together, uh, our members have come together, um, as well as other bodies to develop innovative approaches to food production and packaging. Um, so that kind of forward-looking thinking. Um, aerospace, everybody, you know, fly, if you've gone on a holiday and you're leaving the island of Ireland, you're hopping on an aircraft. Um, and so the aerospace industry is also adopting uh, circular principles in what they're doing, everything from manufacturing aircraft right through to maintenance. And um, one of the areas that we're very focused on here in Ireland is sustainable aircraft fuels. And that's, of course, using um, 
bioproducts to, to make this um, this fuel and, and to make it cost effective for consumers. So, so they're responding collectively and, and putting initiatives together um, around that. They're also working collectively with government and collaborating with government, whether it's through submissions, participating on some of those bodies that, that the Taoiseach and, and Danny referred to earlier. Um, and then and then the other critical area that business is responding and working with um, universities and, and training bodies is around the whole development of skills, uh, green skills. But we spoke earlier about AI AI and and how that how we're integrating data and al analytics. So how are we developing the skills for the future of business that they are better able to respond um, to what's needed? Great, perfect. Thank you. And uh, Jane, yeah, we've uh, Jack has uh, kindly introduced the concept of ESG and ESG integration with um, with the circular economy. Uh, could we kind of hang on the the E for a little a little over yourself? Um, the idea of replacing products with with natural alternatives has been ubiquitous. It seems like every second product you pick up is made of bamboo at the moment. It's it's gone a little mad. Um, but you talk um, about the concept of biocircularity. Could you could you tell us a little bit about that and kind of bring it into the circular economy conversation? So the, the bioeconomy is, is uh, an economy that's based on biological resources as opposed to fossil fuels. So your bamboo toothbrush comes from a, a biological uh, renewable resource, uh, so is, is, a, is a product of the bioeconomy. But also the bioeconomy can be fueled by biofuels, um, can incorporate the use of waste streams, um, uh, as, as was mentioned earlier. Um, and the idea is that uh, we're then not a, a carbon or fossil fuel based economy, but a biologically based economy, uh, which sounds really good because biological resources can regenerate. But we need to make sure that those resources aren't being harvested more quickly than they can regenerate. Uh, and that in processing, the, in producing those resources, we're not causing damage. And that we're not just replacing a linear a fossil-based economy with a linear bio-based economy. So, so a circular bioeconomy and biocircularity uh, is about uh, an economy that's that's using biological materials but keeping those materials in use for, for, for much longer, but also that the production of those materials isn't environmentally damaging and any eventual waste streams aren't environmentally damaging. Um, I'm super conscious that one of my PhD students is in the room who worked on bioeconomy and biocircularity, so I hope I'm getting this right. Um, but really, the whole concept um, is, is inspired by nature. Nature is the ultimate circular economy. Um, and, and so that idea that we need to keep things uh, in, in the process and not lose anything out as waste is, is essential. Okay, and um, moving now uh, on to the S, uh, Richard. Like you've had a, a long history, not necessarily Tetraback, but previously of uh, stakeholder engagement. And I wonder how has uh, stakeholder engagement, the concept, of, uh, the concept of stakeholder engagement, been affected by circularity and the idea of, of all these linkages? Uh, hugely, in fact. I mean, I just go back to the linear economy. So I guess when I first started out in my, in my career in private industry, you would have really two big groups of stakeholders that you would, you would communicate with, and it was based on linearity. As soon as you go circular, you suddenly find out that there are a lot more people you need to be talking to. Now, that brings huge amounts of complexity into those discussions because, you know, 
most stakeholder groups have slightly different views um, on what they want to achieve. So you're having these conversations and you've got to, got to take those back into a business and say, okay, what does this mean for our business and does this make, does this make business sense? Because if things don't make business sense in today's world, and I'm, we're here in the business school, it's extraordinarily difficult to deliver those. Um, now, the one area I think that is still outstanding, certainly in the packaging world, and by the way, I hate talking about packaging waste because I think that gives absolutely the wrong impression. What we're to, nobody buys packaging to put on their mantelpiece at home to look at it and go, oh, isn't that pretty? Now, I come from a company that doesn't make shoe boxes. We make food packaging. So the reason people use our packaging is for food, because it's safe, because it provides that extra long shelf life, et cetera, et cetera. But what we want to recycle, what I, don't, what I want to recycle is the material, which is why I always say post-consumer packaging. How do we get that material back into the chain? And one of the challenges is us, is consumers. That is one of the challenges on making sure that that material can be, can be collected correctly. It can then be sorted correctly. And obviously, I spoke earlier about the, the robotic arm at Ballymount. Um, and we're looking at putting other robotic arms in different, in different countries because that speeds up the sorting. It means you don't have an individual going, which is difficult. You speed that up, and then by you can send it to the right, rec right recovery. Uh, facility and the material can be reused. Now, Tetra Pak, fiber-based product, well, the fiber system has a really good track record of recycling. It's, it's way above 80% in, in, in Europe, and it, that system actually works quite well. But it's how we engage with consumers, and I'm not saying this is easy. If I had the answer, it would be, be fantastic, and it's probably generational. Um, I'm sure I'm looking around the audience thinking I'm probably on the, the upper end of the age cohort in this room now. Um, and, you know, I guess you guys looking out there are really good recyclers, probably better than most people my age. That's why I say it's, it's generational, but we still have more to do. And government, private-public partnerships absolutely have the role to play there in making sure it's easy for people to recycle, and then we have the technology to make sure that post-consumer packaging, in this case, gets to the right recycler so they can take high-quality material and put it back into the system. Now, it doesn't mean, I think, that that means that the material used in packaging suddenly has to become the same package as it was. And that's what I mean by two-dimensional. Because if you take a spherical approach to the circular economy, it means you're then able to get more innovation in because you stimulate new uses. If you pour, and this is my sort of Soviet-era uh, uh, um, discussion, when I used to go to Russia a long, long time ago, they put aspic over everything just because it looked nice. But really, do we want to have our economy covered in aspic? No, we want enabling, we want innovation, we want creativity. And by having a spherical approach, you get innovation, you get creativity, you get new solutions. Otherwise, we will stick with what we have, 
which is a 1980s recycling system designed for the 1980s, and we will not have a fit-for-purpose 21st century recycling superhighway. Fantastic. And uh, Jackie, we were just talking about uh, you know, the role of government as uh, one of the main stakeholders here. Now, obviously, one of the big uh, roles of IBEC is to you know, collect the information from, from your, your, um, your, your group uh, of Irish businesses and then lobby governments and speak to governments about what, what, uh, what these companies need. Can you tell us, what are they asking for now? What are your... Um, I, I think, uh, in terms of specifics, you know, pick a topic there. I, I, we could have a whole hour-long, day-long session on the specifics, but I think in general, asks around ESG circularity is um, A, predictability. Uh, we spoke about that in terms of, of um, uh, investment earlier today with Dave. Um, predictability, what are, what are the rules and also give us time to execute on those rules. So the practicality that Richard spoke to about implementation, um, because the costs of, of running a business are are astronomical and come at businesses from um, uh, all, all, all areas, whether it's labor, labor costs. Um, and with the package of, of rules and regulation that's set to come down on business, business costs are going to increase by 26% um, in, in the next few years. So that's significant. And you might think, oh, poor business. But, but it's business that will be driving the, the, the change that's going to be happening in a significant way. We as consumers, absolutely, we have a role to play. But businesses are investing in innovation, um, manufacturing processes, all of those areas, developing the skills. Um, so I think there's, there's the practical impl um, implementation of some of these uh, policies and regulations. And then making sure that they're engaging us throughout the process as well because um, we have to implement and so um, you know, it makes sense to have us at the table. And then, and then it's the carrot and the stick. So you've got the rules, but then you've also got in incentives. How are you uh, creating uh, the right environment for especially even some of the smaller businesses to thrive and survive while they're trying to live up to their um, uh, sustainability goals and, and the rules that, um, that and standards that the governments are putting in place. Um, the Irish government um, has put in place in 2022 the um, Circular Economy and Miscellaneous Products Act, um, which provided a number of clear rules on recycling and, and especially moving what we are doing at the consumer level, excuse me, at the commercial level. But they're also uh, ring fencing a fund, a circular fund that will support and invest in circular pro projects, um, incentivized um, uh, incentives for uh, using recycled materials as as replacements instead of new. So, so I think all of those areas of consultation and collaboration with business, predictability and practicality and implementation, and providing the right incentives and investments to allow business to be an enabler of advancing our goals around uh, not only you know circularity but also uh, ESG in, in general. Good. Um, circular economy and miscellaneous products. I'm sure Stephen, wherever he is, would have something to say about the branding of that. Terrible, shocking name, shocking name. 
But uh, David, now we're talking about uh, kind of market pricing and the uh, market market mechanisms here. Uh, we understand uh, carbon because it's easy to count, and uh, markets are are starting to price carbon into into companies' valuations, and companies themselves are starting to to put in prices of carbon on their on their own balance sheet. Now that's easy because we can count it, and we can we can we, we can understand that. How are we doing with getting the concept of circularity into 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 businesses? Are there is there any kind of filter of valuations into that, or is happening? I, I think you know the same problem with the consumers is that business stakeholders, i.e., shareholders, uh, in at least one major part of the sh- stakeholder environment, um, you know, don't see the profit in it, the cost in it. The, you know, the carbon. You know, idea. The idea is simple: that you're going to tax carbon, you're going to create a price that continues to go up. And why do you want that price to go up? Because at some point, it makes decarbonizing cheaper than buying your offsets, whatever, right? And so, and there's not a lot of understanding on that on the business side that um, that effective. Uh, um, waste collection and recycling uh, and improvements that we can see with AI can can, can not only um, improve the economy and develop new products, help develop new products in a circular format, um, but create efficiencies that lead to, to better profits and stuff. So uh, businesses need to understand that. And frankly, governments need to understand that a little bit more too. You know, they don't um, the price, like I said initially, uh, of recyclable stocks some, it sometimes is depressingly, frustratingly low um, and needs to, we need to find ways to get it up. And so governments, again, provide incentives, um, businesses provide innovation, and, and shareholders provide the results. Um, I love the concept, Jane, of the of nature being the the um, ultimate circular economy, and when I was talking earlier about kind of how do we deal with the branding issue of of waste management and uh, um, uh, and recycling, you know, it just something that ties into nature seems like a natural a natural fit, especially. When you're talking about the fashion industry and the food industry and stuff, and I know you could talk on and on about how the success of organic, uh, just the label, um, but it's something like that that's that's going to help. So for business, a combination of finding finding that there's money to be made in it, that it can be effective and help the economy um, and satisfy the shareholders who want you to improve um, your uh, your ESG scores. Um, with you know some branding improvement that draws the consumers that uh, could really be effective. Cool. And yeah, to keep it on the same theme of uh, the value of nature to business, uh, something that's very very hard to to be trying to quantify, and something that's very hard that I know a lot of you know yourself and other academics are trying to trying to get trying to tie up the value of nature to business. Um, how how's that going? <laughs> um. I, I guess we can talk about the value of nature in, in, in different ways. What we've traditionally done is valued the outputs from nature that, that, that's, that benefit us. And so, you know, we value ecosystem services, what we get from nature. Um, but by doing that, we forget about the underlying nature. So, you know, what we need to do is make sure that we value the underlying natural assets or natural capital stocks from which flow these benefits, these ecosystem services. Um, It's hard to do. Um, In terms of uh, valuing nature, we can, things that are bought and sold and traded on the market, we can use financial 
prices as a proxy for value. Um, they vary, they're subjective, they, 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 um, you know, people pay different things depending on how needy or desperate they are for them. Um, but for an awful lot of those, those values that we get from nature, those benefits that we get from nature, we, we, it's very difficult or impossible to put a, a financial value on those things and, in, and, and indeed very unwise. Um, so there's this sort of, I suppose, amongst the sort of ecological community, there's a real love-hate relationship with valuing nature is we know that if it's not valued, it's not on the balance sheet, it's not taken into account. And if it is valued, it's probably undervalued and, and everybody will argue about how, how it's been done. So I think there is a, we need to recognise that it's priceless. We need to recognise that it's valuable, but we do also need to bring it into our decision-making. And that's what a lot of the, the natural capital approach and the natural capital concept is about, is about understanding the importance of those underlying stocks for those flows, those underlying natural capital assets, nature, essentially, and what we get from it, um, even if we can't put a financial value to, to all of those things. Fantastic. Yeah, that's, that's just one of the, the following that. It's one of the one of the issues. Like, do you even want to put a financial value in some cases on on nature? It comes up in the discussions about water. Maybe we should just price water and have a market. You're starting to see uh, um, companies invest in water in that way. Um, do we really want to price water and drive up the you know the price of such you know a, a, a you know a valuable primary resource for us? Um, we're pricing forests, forestry offsets. You know, that's kind of difficult to do. And so um, it's a tough topic because uh, nature is priceless, as you say. And yet we have to find a way to illustrate its value in some way. It is illustrate its value, but also incentivize its restoration uh, and, and reward for for the, the return of nature. So, yeah, like I say, it's a bit, a bit of a love-hate relationship with, with, with that topic. Yeah, fantastic. Well, it's been uh, been a, a great uh, conversation. I think we're just about out of time. So, if um, but if you'd each like to have kind of one final thought, maybe some point either that uh, a co-panelist made that you would like to particularly emphasize, or something that we think that you may, we may have missed in the conversation. Start. Um, it's really building on the discussion of um, on nature and natural capital and pricing, etc. I think standards have a huge role to play in, in valuing assets, valuing the assets of nature. So standards should be better based on the science because those push back down the, down the chain into the asset and hopefully support the asset over time. Um, so I'm a, I'm a great believer in having those commonality of standards that you build which then actually provide the support to the asset. Um, I, I guess my final comment, I'll come back to the idea of uh, nature being the, the ultimate circular economy. Um, and really, uh, you know, if, if I'm teaching ecology to first year students, the first thing we start with is talking about ecosystems and about how energy flows through them, but nutrients cycle within them. Uh, and so that brings me to think about if, if if we understood, if, if we as a society understood the complexity of natural systems or just even not understand, appreciate the complexity of those natural systems and how they work, I think that could go a long way to, to 
through understanding how they're valuable, how they underpin uh, what we're doing, uh, and that we can then we can build from that basis. So I'm just voting for more more ecologists, basically, <laughs> or more, more people who understand ecology. Um, I I would say um, it's. I could pick out something great from every single one of my co-panelists um, this morning. Um, but I think one of the things that we need to think about is, is behavior. So we need more of this. We need more investment. We need to do more of that. But we're also in uh, a perfect storm of multiple crises hitting at once. The cost of living, um, you know, food security, scarcity, you know, energy all of those things are having an impact on the, the consumer and the public and, and ultimately the voters, their appetite for investing in future technologies and innovations that are going to help um, our environment and climate change. And, and that is especially acute when we are entering into election cycles. Um, you know, Ireland will be going into one next year, and we've got the EU elections. And there's a saying that I always um, repeat, and I can never remember who to attribute it to, so, um, but it's uh, politicians think to the next election, statesmen think to the next generation. And I think the more we can act and think like statesmen, in looking to the future, not just what we can do today, I think we'll be better off for it. And I, I am optimistic because I see statesmen on this panel. Uh, I deal with them every day in business, and and so I'm I'm optimistic on on where we can go. Good to hear. Um, I think you know government and statesmen changing the conversation to be more on incentives and innovation and less on uh, restrictions and punishments. Um, is a good way to change the dynamic of the conversation. Um, but what I'd like to see first is the, um, instead of marking the value of nature, is stopping the devaluation of nature, i.e. the deforestation and uh, um, drilling uh, that affects our water, uh, our water sources and stuff. Um, you know, we're actually going backwards in that, in that regard. And it's, uh, it's a very important thing that I think governments uh, need to get their, their heads around very fast before we can move forward. Yeah, the, the narrative is entirely wrong. It's uh, about the, the costs of doing things as opposed to the benefits that uh, nature provides to us. And I think panels like this are a very good way of starting to set that conversation straight. So thank you everybody for, for your time and your valuable contributions. Thank you very much for joining us on that conversation. We hope that you enjoyed it. We hope that you uh, learned something. Uh, if you did enjoy it, please feel free to leave a five-star review and to subscribe to any of our channels and we'll be sure to keep you updated on future productions. These are conversations that you just can't afford to miss.